0: So I just want you to picture an an aged prophet. God has given him one more message to speak God's word, and he takes, you know, his his ink pen or whatever he's using, dips it in, and he begins to write lines that are on his heart that God has given him to say a word of the Lord for the people. The book of Malachi, as we've walked through it, there's been about six major sermons, almost six themes. I could imagine Malachi over the years taking his messages on the road, teaching God's Word. He's talked about giving, he's talked about marriage, he's talked about worship. And now he's going to include, have three last lines. You know, as one who has been I've been a preaching pastor for 11, 12 years, I just know what happens when someone is faithfully teaching the Word as I expect Malachi was your heart grows for the people. And so this is a spiritual dad to his generation saying, hear the word of the Lord. You know, before I preach, I often pray, Lord, may I love your word, may I preach it faithfully, but may God's people hear the word. And I, I just sense, spiritual dad Malachi, oh, that the people of my generation would hear the word of the Lord. I suspect... Uh, the parents who are you know, thinking about child dedication, that's what they're praying for their kids' heart. Oh, that my kids would grow up. They would hear God's word. They would believe that God is good, that his commands are good. I know many parents who have raised kids, that's what your heart is. You're just praying, would my kids know the truth? Would the truth set them free? Let's hear Malachi's last three words. In verse 4 of chapter 4, he says, Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb for all Israel. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children, and the hearts of the children to their parents. Or else I will come, and I will strike the land with total destruction. This is God's word. So I want to tag this sermon: an everyday, an everyday attitude for critical days ahead. An everyday attitude for critical days ahead. Have you ever been listening to the radio where they make it goes? Eh, eh, eh. Here is a message from the emergency broadcast system. And then to follow that, it's some sort of weather update, or I read this week uh, that emergency broadcast system, they can also tell you about terror alerts, and if you should seek, uh, it goes all the way back to when you would seek shelter in some bomb shelter. Uh, That's how I'm looking at at Malachi. These are are critical words for critical days. Uh, But no one would have known originally the significance of these last three lines. These are the last three lines of the Old Testament. This is the last time God speaks to his people for 400 years. The people of Israel, get this message. This will serve you, not for four weeks, not for four decades, for four centuries, so that you will be ready the next time God speaks mightily. An everyday attitude for critical days ahead. So, what is the everyday attitude? In the original, it just says, remember, did you catch that? It says, remember the law of my servant Moses. Uh, I'm going to kind of spin it this way. The everyday attitude is to soberly, to be soberly and submissively inclined to God's word. It's a, lot, it's a mouthful for just one Hebrew word, remember. But this word remember, it's, it's not like memory recall. Right? It's not, you know, some of you guys out there, like you can do the alphabet backwards. Because you learned that, and you tried to impress your friends in the third grade. When he's saying, remember the law of Moses, it's saying, I want you to have this inclination, this posture to God's word to receive it. Right? So to be soberly and submissively inclined to God's word. So the idea of. Being sober-minded is to be clear-headed. I don't know if you guys have ever smelled smelling salts, but there's a reason that wakes fainted people up. They're alert. God wants us to be sobered by this, just the significance that the eternal God that we cannot see has chosen to speak. We're going to talk about this next week when we turn the corner into the book of Hebrews, but God, in, in, in days past, he spoke through prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken by his Son. Right? The Lord Jesus Christ is called the Word of God that everything Jesus said and did is, is divinity on the move but but the words that we have from Moses and from prophets like him, Samuel and King David, these are rational, clear words so that we can truly know God. That should sober us that the eternal God speaks. But we should also be, not just be sobered by that, we should be inclined submissively. That is, ready to obey, ready to act. Uh, You know, think about like an eight and nine year old when they get a new Lego set, right? They pull out the instructions and eight and nine year olds, they know to follow each step in order because if you skip one, you have an extra piece and the things don't fit together. That's what it means to be inclined submissively to God's word. This isn't how like 45-year-old men when they learn tips on how to diet. 40-year-old 45-year-old men who learn tips on a the diet, they don't do it. <laughs> They're not inclined submissively to, "Oh, I guess I should lower my caloric intake." Huh, who knew? Right? When God speaks, our hearts are to be ready to listen, to be inclined submissively and soberly to them. But why? Notice how Moses is described. Why God's word? Why the law? Why the word? Because it's come through God's servants. Moses, my servant. That term servant has it's a level of intimacy as well as authority. God chose Moses... Like a seven-year-old girl selects the teddy bear before she goes to bed. This is special. This is my special servant Moses. I've chosen him out of all the people there to be an agent to speak my truth and lead my people. So there's a level of intimacy to the term servant, but there's a level of authority. Every four to eight years, a new president steps into office and they select the secretary of state, the chief advisor for all foreign affairs. And when the secretary of state State speaks, the world listens. That was Moses. Moses is intimately chosen, but he's intimately chosen with authority because he's my servant. We're inclined to God's word through God's servants. That's to be our hearts. Um, Notice that it uses multiple terms just in one verse, the, the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws. Some of your translations will use the term, term statutes. Many of you know as you read through the scriptures, you realize that God has a word for every critical area of life. God speaks to us about depression. There's a whole soul song that says, that's talking to the soul. Oh my soul, why are you downcast? Oh my soul. There's words in Scripture for depression and anxiety. There's cases of mental illness in the Scripture. There's issues of marital troubles. There's issues of uh, questions, a lot of questions about gender and sexuality right now. There's a lot of questions about how do I make decisions. Like the Lord God has given us a word for these things to help us in our time of need. If you turn into the New Testament, when the Apostle Paul is instructing his, serv- or his uh, mentee, Timothy, he, he speaks about all that God's Word offers. I'm in Second Timothy chapter 3, uh, beginning in verse 14. Paul is saying to uh, Tim- Timothy, he says, But as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned, and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures. All right? Those of you who are dedicating your children today, Timothy grew up at home that from the littlest of ages, they taught Timothy God's word. And Paul's saying, you know, 20 years later, hey, Timothy, remember from the littlest days your dad quoting scripture to you? Remember that. Why? It goes on to say, because these are the scriptures you learn from infancy, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. There's a wisdom in the scriptures that leads you to salvation, a wisdom you will get nowhere else. The wisdom of the world is summarized pretty well by an old Saturday Night Live character named Stuart Smalley. I'm good enough. I'm smart enough. Gosh darn it, people like me. Uh, that will not make you wise for salvation. It will make you a very funny character. But you won't know about the, the, the complexity of humanity we are both beautiful and yet broken. The great scientist, Blaise Pascal, he described us as glorious ruins. And that humanity has the capabilities of some of the greatest feats in the universe for good as well as for evil. What can explain that? And God's word comes in and he's wise to salvation. God made you in his image and yet you rebelled against him. You turned from him. But God in his mercy sent his son to redeem those who have rebelled. So those who believe and trust can be saved. That's what Paul is referring to. That the scriptures they make you wise for salvation. And then verses sixteen and seventeen. What is scripture? Well, all scripture is God breathed. It's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. All right. This is the laws, the decrees, the statutes. Thoroughly equipped. If you want to be thoroughly ill-equipped, ignore God's Word. If you want to be thoroughly equipped, love this book. Be, turn to this book. Be inclined to it soberly and submissively. I want to look at one Old Testament example uh, of someone who is both sobered and submissive to God's Word. And it's King Josiah. Uh, if you have your own Bibles, I'm going to be in Second Kings 22, but we'll have a couple of verses in the PowerPoint as well. Let me just the introduction to Josiah is in verses one and two of Second Kings twenty two. Let me read to you about Josiah. It says it says Josiah was eight years old. Any eight year olds out there? I got one. She's not paying attention. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Any other eight year olds? All right. Well, he becomes a king at eight. And he reigned in Jerusalem thirty one years. His mother's name was Jedediah, daughter of Adi- Adiah. She was from Bosca. Verse two, I love this. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord followed completely the ways of his father David, not turning aside to the right or to the left. What an epithet, right? This man loved God from eight years on. But an interesting incident occurs later in his ministry. This is in verse 11. This is 18 years into ministry, 18 years of faithful service, 18 years of loving God. And they discover a portion of Scripture that had been lost. And then the word, they, they come to the king and they read the words. They read God's word to him. And it says, when the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his robes. And he gave these orders to Hilkiah the priest, Achaim son of Shephan, Akbar, son of Micaiah, Shephon the secretary, and Isaiah the king's attendant. He said, go and inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all Judah about what is written in this book that has been found. Great is the Lord's anger that burns against us, because those who have gone before us have not obeyed the words of this book. They have not acted in accordance with all that is written there concerning us. He hears God's word. He sees where they have been out of line with God's word. And he says, we got to respond. we got to seek God's mercy. we got to repent. Notice what he didn't do. Well, we've done pretty well for 18 years. No, when God's word came and it spoke about something that they had missed in those 18 years, he said, let's respond. God's word is always relevant. It's never passé. It, there's no past, you know, like past date, you know, expiration date on God's word. And, and Josiah knew that. And so he heard and he was sobered. And then he called the, the nation, all Israel. We've got to repent. We've got to turn. We've got to respond to this God. God was merciful to that generation. I believe God will be merciful to this generation. God's word is always relevant. One last uh, reference. If you have a Bible, I'm going to Jeremiah uh, 6.16. This has been a verse that's been near and dear to my heart for a long time. Jeremiah was a prophet right before the city of Jerusalem experienced judgment. And Jeremiah said this, this is what the Lord says, stand at the crossroads and look, ask for the ancient paths, ask where the good way is and walk in it and you will find rest for your souls. But Jeremiah said this to his generation, but you said, we will not walk in it. Now, I've prayed today that we would do better than Jeremiah's generation, that that someone today would say, I want to walk in the ancient paths. You know, for some, this is a first commitment. You know, you're, you're beginning to just believe over time. You've seen it in people's lives. You've seen in your life that God's word is true, and you want to make that first commitment. I want to submit my life to all of God's word. I want to be soberly and submissively inclined to God's word in all aspects of life. For some of you, it's a recommitment. I once was, but now I've been lost. I'm coming back just to trust God's word, to build my life around God's word. For some, it's a a really big return. Um, A number of years ago, there was a songwriter by the name of Andrew Peterson. And uh, later today, go listen to this song. Uh, But there's a, a song that he wrote a number of years ago called, You'll Find Your Way. And he, it's, a, it's a song written uh, from a father to a son. And since I have three sons, this song just nails me every time. These are some of the lyrics. He writes, When I look at you, boy, and I can see the road that lies ahead, I can see the love and the sorrow. There's bright fields of joy, there's dark nights awake in a stormy bed. I want to go with you, but I can't follow. And then he sings the chorus. So, keep to the old roads. Keep to the old roads, and you'll find your way. More lyrics. He says, your first kiss, your first crush, the first time you know that you're not enough. The first time there's no one there to hold you. He says, that I know you'll be scared when you take up that cross. I know that it'll hurt, because I know what it costs. I love you so much, and it's so hard to watch, but you're going to grow up, and you're going to get lost. But go back. Just go back. He says, go back, go back to the ancient past. Lash your heart to the ancient mass. And hold on, boy, whatever you do to the hope that's taken hold of you. And you'll find your way. Remember the law of your servant Moses. Be soberly and submissively inclined to God's word. That's the everyday attitude Four critical days ahead. And that's how Malachi ends this book. Those of you who have been with us this whole sermon series, he's talked about many contemporary crises that were happening in the 5th century BC Israel. But now he's looking ahead and he says, There's critical days coming. And he mentions two. The critical days are the day of Elijah and the day of the Lord. He says, These days are coming. So come back with me in Malachi 4, it says, uh, verse 5, it says, See, God is speaking, I'm going to send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He, this Elijah, will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. So again, this is 5th century B.C. Israel. Malachi looks out and says, there's critical days coming, the day, of the day of Elijah and the day of the Lord. Now, if you're an Old Testament person, a Jewish person, and you hear the term Elijah, you get a little giddy. I mean, Elijah is one of the greatest prophets. Kids in those days did not grow up with movies about Marvel superheroes. They would hear stories about Elijah standing up to kings, evil kings, and saying, you're going down, Brother story of Elijah on, the, on Mount Carmel, one prophet versus over 800 false prophets. Those are, you know, if Las Vegas was doing odds against one versus 800 plus, the odds aren't good for Elijah. And yet God showed up on the Mount Carmel, no reference to ice cream toppings, he shows up on this mountain in mighty ways to say that there is one true God, and at that point there's a great repentance and people of Israel follow God for a season. They knew about Elijah. Now there's this kind of this prophetic word, Elijah's coming. And by the way, there's all kinds of speculation for hundreds of years. Well, what's this going to look like? Is he going to teleport down from heaven? Uh, How will Elijah come? And there's things in between the Old and the New Testament. Uh, The writings are called intertestamental writings for those of you who like big fancy words. Who is this Elijah? What will he be like? And this is why when John the Baptist shows up, not everyone thought he was Elijah. He was just a guy out in the wilderness. He wore some funny clothes. He ate some funny food. But he seemed authentic. And he seemed real. And he began to to preach something. He said, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. And eventually, Jesus would arrive, and John would say, hey, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John the Baptist says, you know, I told you about one greater than me, one who I was not even worthy to untie his sandals. There he is. And later, Jesus himself will say, if you can believe it, John the Baptist is the Elijah to come. 400 years the Jews waited for Elijah. 400 years they waited, and Jesus said, there he is, John the Baptist. Here's the question, what happened at that day of Elijah. The issue is it was, a, it was a turning of the epics of the salvation history of God. It was a new era in which God was going to move into work. It would be the inauguration of what we would call the kingdom of grace. John the Baptist said, the king is coming. Repent. Now here's the thing that you got to realize. What did Malachi want? Malachi wanted the people for 400 years... To be inclined to God's word, so that when John the Baptist, the Elijah to come, arrived, they would be ready to hear, ready to believe, have soft hearts to listen to the message. I just throw this out here. If you want to have your ear trained to hear God's voice, if you want to have your heart sensitive to hear God's voice, it is through the regular reading and meditation and submission to God's word. That's what train that's ear training, those of you in music. this is ear training. You want spiritual ear training. you read God's word. When God speaks, you're like, "I know that voice. I have heard it before." Jesus said, "My sheep hear my voice, and they follow me. I want to look just quickly at what it describes would happen through the day of Elijah, or this changing of the epics. What happens under this new era? It says, God would change people's hearts. He would turn their hearts. And it uses this beautiful metaphor of sons' hearts being turned to their fathers, and fathers' hearts being turned to their sons. I think we all know that one of the most dis- disturbing, discouraging things is when homes rip apart, when 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 fathers and their kids and mothers and their kids. There's this division. It's, a, it's an ugly, ugly thing. But when grace arrives, there's this turning of hearts, fathers to sons, sons to fathers. There's, there's this what 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 what. Malachi is envisioning what happens time and time again: is God enters one person's life, one person meets Jesus, one person is saved, and then it begins to spill out in their home, and eventually their whole home can say what uh, Joshua the Old Testament said: "As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord." By the way, I believe there's a vision too of not just like this kind of turning of of hearts to the Lord and to one another. I think it's also this picture of a church where multiple generations love and respect one another, right? There's this turning of hearts from the old to the young. I would say in many places we would go out into the world and all the old people just think little kids are loud and unpleasant. But Lord, Lord we never in the church. We love the wiggles. We love the noises. We love the snacks and the crumbs and the bathroom, like like there's this turning of the old to the young because God's people are in the hearts of the young, right? They're, God's people are there too. But there also is this turning too of the young respecting the old and saying, oh, teach us. It says in the Psalms, may one generation commend your works to another, right? And so we love it when our little ones go to Sunday school and they listen to saints who have learned that these, these words of God are true for real life. In the day of Elijah, in the kingdom of grace, the time of now, God is at work in generations and in in homes. And we pray, Lord, do it again. But why? Because it says there's also a day of the Lord coming. right? And the day of the Lord is described in pretty direct uh, terms to to awake us. Uh, The day of the Lord in verse 6 is called a great and dreadful day. It's also at the end of 6. It says when the day of the Lord comes, uh, the Lord will come in final judgment. And he will strike the land with total destruction. One day in history, we believe this is at the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, all of the bullies will be taken out of the playground. right? Where there has been evil and violations and abuse and harassment. Where there has been sickness and death and cruelty. One day God says, I love my people no more. It's a day of grace for those who've trusted Jesus, but it is. It's a dreadful day for those who don't know the grace, who haven't got to that place in their own heart. I repent. I'm a bully. (laughs) I've been one of the wicked ones. I've been one of the proud ones. There's a great and dreadful day coming. The Lord is trying to prepare us through the preaching of the word, the sending of uh, John the Baptist and Jesus Christ. A lot of people have uh, compared the day of Elijah and the day of the Lord to what happened in World War II history between D-Day and V-Day. So those of you who like history, D-Day was June 6, 1944. This is when the Allied invasion had a major advance and took uh, the beach of Normandy, established a beachhead in Europe, and slowly made their way to Berlin, pushing back the Axis powers, Nazi, evil, death, and setting free concentration camps, right? That was D-Day. The beachhead was won. Victory was certain. It's just going to take some time. V-Day, Victory Day, is May 8th, 1945. About a little bit less than a year later. The war is over. What happens when war is over? Medals are bestowed, and the war trial starts. That's the picture of, this is a time of grace. Jesus Christ has come. He Lived the life we were supposed to live. He died the death that we deserved. He rose triumphantly over the grave. And he says, anyone who wants forgiveness and peace and mercy with me, come. And then there's also this double blessing. And then I'm going to put my peace in you and you're going to bring peace to others. But one day this time of clemency, this time of repentance will end. And final judgment and you know, the appropriate reckoning, the end of evil will come. There will be a victory day. You know, C.S. Lewis described what happened really well in some words in Mere Christianity. He, he, he writes this. He says, uh, enemy-occupied territory, that is what this world is. But Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed. You might say landed in disguise and is calling us to all take part in a great campaign of sabotage. And when you go to the church, you're really listening in to the secret wireless from our friends. And that is why the enemy is so anxious to prevent us from going. I love this picture. Like Jesus, when he entered the earth, Satan was still the prince of this air. In dying and resurrecting, Lord Jesus reigns in heaven. But now those who trust him, they're part of this this little advancement on the world. We are part of a different sort of kingdom than this world. It's a kingdom of peace, love, sacrifice, service. The way of the Lamb is the way of mercy and forgiveness. And so the way of the Lamb's people is mercy, sacrifice. And every time you come to church and every time you pick up the Bible, you're getting little secret messages from the wireless. Those are radios. Kids, radios are kind of like cell phones. But God... This is truth. Walk in it. There's life here, life that you won't experience anywhere else. The church will remain as committed as we can to the faithful teaching of God's word. We will do this together. That's probably why when we do these child dedications in just a moment, we have the church also make vows to these parents, that you're going to help these Parents raise their kids to know the Lord. You're going to use your gifts to teach Sunday school. You're going to offer your gifts of encouragement in the foyer to bless little ones as they grow up. Together we will be faithful until the Lord returns. And we will be faithful as we cling to God's word and as we cling to one another. A unity across generations. Let me pray. Let me pray for our church. Let me pray for these parents that are about to dedicate their kids. Lord, thank you for the people who have gathered today to hear truth from your word. Word that is always relevant. Word that is always helpful. Lord, one day we know that the, the bullies will have to come to an end. And in some ways we say, Lord, come, Je- come now. Because there's so many, so many atrocious, awful things. And yet, Lord, we also just say, Lord, we want others to know the good news of Jesus. And so, Lord, come at your timing and help us to be faithful along the way. We pray especially for these parents, Lord, that they could be faithful in hard days, in the joys and in the sorrows, times of discipline. Give them grace, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.